So with my students, I'm always trying to say like, why? Justify, explain it to me. How did you do this? Not just here's my design, really go into the thinking that went behind it because the more comfortable you are with explaining the thinking backed up by hard skills, the more likely you are to get that job. Today, we dive into the world of industrial design with New York-based superstar, Reed Schlegel. With an impressive career spanning top-tier firms like Huge, Aruladen and Frog, Reed's expertise is unmatched. Not content with just shaping products and experiences, he's also shaping minds as an educator at Parsons School of Design and Keon University. But Reed's influence extends far beyond the classroom. With over 129,000 followers on Instagram and more than 17,000 subscribers to his YouTube channel, he is a pioneering creative influencer. And if that's not enough for you, Reed discusses his current passion project, developing his cabin and eco-lodge in upstate New York. Join us as we uncover the multifaceted brilliance of Reed Schlegel, with many Astorian lessons for aspiring and established creatives alike. Enjoy. Reed, it's so great to have you on today. Can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background uh, as an industrial designer? Um, and I understand you're a, you're a professor now, um, uh, inspiring a, a new generation of industrial designers. Can you take us back to where that journey started and um, how it led to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So yeah, my name is Reed Schlegel and I've been an industrial designer here in New York City since 2012-ish. And since then, my whole career has been pretty focused on consulting. So I started my career working at a place called Quirky, which is now defunct and doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, I was actually having coffee with a student today, and they said that the website still exists, but I think it's more of just like a shell <laughs> of what it used to be. Um, but from there, I went to more traditional established ID firms, uh, which started at Smart Design. So I was there for about two plus years working on mostly OXO products. And that was a really great place to start my career off. And I was really fortunate that they take risks on younger designers and give people careers and kind of help me really get my ball moving. Because from there, I jumped over to Frog, where I was at for, I think it was four-ish years. Um, and was at Frog, I got to do a wider range of products. When I was at Smart, mentioned it was mostly OXO, very like traditional hands-on industrial design. But Frog was much more everything else. It was obviously traditional industrial design, but a lot of strategy, research. Uh, I think I got to travel for like a year and a half total when I was there. I got to live in uh, Germany. Uh, I have to go to Japan, South Korea, Austria, Italy, UK, Canada, uh, and a whole bunch of other fun places for work projects and uh, research trips. So working there, it was really learning how to be more of a strategist as well as a designer and really tanking all of the soft skills and the business portions of it that we weren't doing specifically working on foam models or sketching and all of the hands-on design work. Um, but after being there for a bit, I got recruited over to go to Arleden. And a big reason I went to Arleden was just because they have such a high level of aesthetic. Um, and I just really wanted to hone that skill and get a little better at it. Also, working at Frog, a lot of the things I was doing didn't get to go to market, not because they weren't good products, it was just because they weren't that type of product or project. So our lead-in, basically everything I worked on went to market, which was cool. Um, one of my biggest clients there was Verizon Wireless, and I got to work with them for about three years as one of the creative directors leading this whole design language system. And we cranked out probably 30 plus products, um, which is now on a whole new design language that I helped on my way out of that client. 
Um, but working there, got to take a whole bunch of products from zero all the way through manufacturing. So I got to have a whole bunch of new experiences there, learning how to really make something real. Um, but then from Arleden, I was fortunate enough to get recruited over to Huge um, over in your neck of the woods in Dumbo. That role lasted for only a year, unfortunately, because uh, they decided after a year they no longer did industrial design. So me and my team were um, very unceremoniously just not working there as of one morning, which honestly was fine. I was trying to figure out if jumping around to more consulting firms was what I wanted to do. And when they made the decision for me, I just said, screw it. I'm just going to work for myself. So now for the last year and change, I've opened up my own studios called Reach Legal Design. And I've been doing everything for myself. And it's been anything from illustration work. Uh, like if you saw last summer, all those subway takeovers with uh, what's it called? New York Lottery, HGTV, um, architectural illustrations. Like they hired me yeah. to do illustration work for them. And I did, I did not understand how big that project was until all of a sudden it was literally on every billboard. And I was in a, like my girlfriend texts me and she goes, this entire subway car is filled with your sketches and work, which was kind of crazy. <laughs> um, That's awesome. So projects like that up to like traditional industrial design clients, most of the clients I've worked with in the last year or so, the products are still in manufacturing. So they're not really something I can share yet. But it's been fun I'm doing all the skills I learned at the previous consulting firms, but at my own pace and my own speed. Um, that way we can do the fun things we want to do outside of work. Um, but what keeps the lights on as well at this point is, as you mentioned before, I have been a professor now for, this is my seventh year at Parsons. Mm -hmm. And I've been teaching there. I started teaching just one class, which was, um, what's it called? Process drawing, and, process drawing and digital visualization, which is basically how do you communicate an idea visually? Uh, so that class is obviously lots of hands-on sketching, but now it's getting into digital sketching, AI, CAD rendering, and all the skills you need to basically explain to someone else your idea. But since then, I also now teach the junior year industrial design studio. And my class, I call it colloquially, so you want to be a consultant. So it's basically like taking the design process and breaking it down into like real phases, like taking them all the way through phase one through, I think we go to say six at the end of this project. And they have to build an entire design language system for a brand that they pick out of a hat randomly. Um, this year, I changed the class up with my co-teacher, um, Go and Choi. We're teaching it together this year because I'll get into it, but I'm doing something else that's coming up in a few weeks um, where all the brands are sustainable companies, where in the previous few years, I've tried to take like established brands and make them sustainable, which is hard, as all of you probably know. Mm -hmm. But this time around, I said, instead of trying to greenwash brawn, why don't we just start with a company that already gives a shit about the sustainability from the beginning and just make them more successful. So this time around, we're doing brands like Home Biogas and Lomi uh, or Gomi, um, I guess with a Polestar, different brands like that. So that's the class this semester. Um, but this year, I'm actually co-teaching the class because Kane University, which is a smaller school over in New Jersey, uh, hired me to teach their study abroad program. So my girl, girlfriend and I and our dog were actually leaving in two weeks to go move to Rome for nine, for two, I guess, nine weeks. So two months and change where I'm going to be teaching wow. um, a nice. portfolio class and a class called Critical Perspectives. Um, she also teaches. She's an architect. Um, so she'll be teaching on American time, which is going to be kind of brutal. But we're going over to Rome for our little European sabbatical to go teach for a bit. Um, 
but then I also teach um, a few other classes. Teaching has become something that I've kind of evolved and rolled into more and more of my time. I think right now I'm teaching five classes this semester on top of consulting work, but that's enough about me rambling on about things. I'm sure there's some other things you want to talk about, other questions we can get into. <laughs> well, no, that's that's awesome. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting that you, um, you know, you you yourself had such a meteoric rise. I mean, you're you're really um, an inspiration, I, I know, for a lot of these students. So so what what sort of your process with, you know, everything going on um, today with the back when you were in school, the amount of digital tools and AI, they, they weren't really obviously where they are today. So, mm -hmm. so how, how are you, how are you teaching, um, like traditional methodology and then the application of these newer tools, um, you know, utilizing what you were saying, like sustainable or, um, end to end design methodology, like, like how, how, is, what is your approach? with this generation of students? I mean, it's definitely a, a moving target and something that I think everyone's trying to figure out simultaneously. But I still am a firm believer that the hard skills need to be learned because even if you have AI to get your process going or to augment some of the harder skills that learn, you still have to be someone who understands proportion and how to, at a basic level, communicate your ideas quickly. And if I'm in front of a client, there is no um, replacement for being able to just quickly draw for them what they're thinking. And when you can do that, someone looks at you like you're a wizard and you've taken someone's idea and it's no longer just a thought or some PowerPoint presentation. It's a tangible object that they can look at. That's something that I think everyone still has to know. And you can't really be a good designer without having the, it's like the chicken or the egg. You kind of have to know how to make something good in order to tell AI what is good. And if you only have something that's just regurgitating what it already exists back to you, it's going to be hard for you to ever really make something new and creative because that's the problem with AI is that it can just make new versions of things that currently exist. You can help prompt it to do funky things. And yeah, you can definitely come up with some things you probably wouldn't have thought of. So for me, when I'm teaching AI in school, I <clears throat> have been working with a company called Vizcom. And what they do is they have a platform that allows you to sketch right into their software and then prompt your sketching. So that way it basically takes a loose sketch, but the tighter the sketch, the better. Um, if you want to get like a very specific execution done, and then it'll basically take it to a full blown render really quickly. So I had um, Gergay, one of their experts come into my class and um, give them a demo one day. I'm completely of the mindset of if I have someone who's better than me at a topic, I'm not going to be vain and try and teach it. I was going to bring that person in if they're willing and have them show my students the best they can. So he came in and gave a demo on it. So it's something where I still encourage them that you still need to know how to draw in perspective, how to know and how to apply line weights, how to do composition at least. But I'm not going to sit there and try and force someone to do a full-blown sketchbook pro digital sketch anymore unless they really want to. I still think it's a skill that people should know. Like I make a good amount of money in my business doing conceptual work like that because I can just execute it how I want it pretty quickly. But it took 15 years of doing it to get to that point where I can mm -hmm. just crank it out. And yeah, it's not as fast as AI, but I'm also not sitting there and you know prompting, changing, prompting, changing. It's just like do it right the first time. Um, and then sustainability, that's a whole other question. That's one where I'm personally trying to learn as much as I can. Um, in industrial design world, sustainability can mean so many different things. And 
like when I was working with Verizon, that meant specific things like how do we reduce weight? How do we get as the fewest number of electronic parts that are going to break in the product? How do you make something that's even possibly repairable? But at the end of the day, other than that, it was how can we get the most recycled plastic in here? We're still using plastic. Or how can you make sure the product is as small as possible so that way it's going to um, use as little material as possible? So a lot of times sustainability can be tricky to teach people because it really just requires you to have to learn something completely new every time you have a new ask for it. And when you're doing it, it gets so quickly in the weeds of how much you don't know and how many interconnected things there are. So with my students, what I'm trying to do at least, and which is great because I find that this new generation of um, students is very hungry for sustainable pro projects and they want to learn how to do it, is basically getting them exposed to brands that are already doing this well and trying to have them say, okay, let's unpack how they're doing it and let's see how those methodologies can be applied to future projects. I'm also teaching, um, I'm stepping in for the CAD class for a few days because um, my buddy who actually got me the job at Kane also teaches at Parsons. And while he's in Rome, I'm gonna teach his class and vice versa for a little bit. Um, there's these plugins you can now put into CAD software, like in SolidWorks, which is the software that I use mostly, or Fusion 360, where you can basically take your models, apply materials to it, and you can have it run simulations on how much energy is going to take to make the material or make the product in this material. What is the shipping cost if you're shipping it from Japan to um, New Zealand or something? You can you can have it give you a pretty good ballpark of what that's going to be. And that's something that we've been putting into our CAD classes more. So now at least students are aware of what their decisions are going to mean in the long term for a real product and for a potential um, shipment of millions of these things. So my long-winded answer is basically, I try and get everyone just to see what everyone else is doing and like learn through osmosis, but then at a tactile level, at least in their CAD files, starting to jump in and say, okay, how can I optimize my design as much as possible? That way they're familiar with doing those things before they're even asked to do it because a lot of clients don't even ask for it. So you have to be mm -hmm. the advocate for it. If you don't have those skills, it never happens. So a lot of that stuff really does start with the creative people on projects pushing for it, opposed to waiting for someone to put it in their lap. We'd like to take a moment to remind you that Play In Conversations is brought to you by Play Co. If you want to explore more about design opportunities, discover new insights, or connect with Play Co. for a design project, be sure to visit playinco.com. Like my mind's working overtime, so yeah, no, that's really impressive. I think. Um, you're really, you strike me as the kind of guy who's um, hitting all levels of the design process. So like, uh, I think teaching is critically important. Uh, we see a lot of interns and um, applicants coming coming out of school who lack a lot of, I think, industry preparedness. So the, the, the depth to which you're talking about exposing your students to is really quite encouraging, uh, to be honest. And I think uh, yeah. one of the things I said to Simon before we jumped on this call really last minute was if there's one thing we would love to get out of Reed, it's, um, you know, how do you, coming from a, a question that we often end on, which is what advice would you give to young designers leading mm -hmm. with that with someone like you? Because you know, the consulting experience is, is uh, at three or four, you know, pretty uh, amazing consultancies, um, plus teaching, plus uh, your self-driven 
self-promotion or, you know, your social media awareness, your media awareness, your PR awareness is something that I think is really important for young designers to learn from. So um, everyone that's not privy to to one of your classes could stand a lot to gain from this. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, things like sustainability, you're absolutely right. I think that they're... um, Certain companies like Allbirds are creating their own processes um, mm-hmm. and their own blueprints. And I think over, you know, over the, over the coming uh, years or, or decade, I think there will be exemplary companies that that will set trends and create market demand. And then, hopefully, what what will happen because they're the pioneers is that they create a a kind of a following or a um, I don't want to say copycat mindset, but, uh, but you know, they'll influence the industry. They'll influence their competitors to kind of, the way. yeah, to, to adopt, particularly in sustainability. Yeah. My, my students, when they take my class, there's always a handful of them who like just don't love me in the moment of my class. <laughs> Good. Because it is a lot. Crack the whip. <laughs> Tell it's them never trying to be a, it's never just trying to be a asshole. It's more of just listen. This is the reality of the situation. And I'm going to treat you like a professional within reason. Like I know your students, but I always try and I see it as Parsons is an art is a very art school. So a lot of students come in with a lot of here's what I want to do. And I'm trying to teach people like, yes, that's part of the equation. But it's really about how do you get your skills to be at a marketable place in which you can solve problems for other people's in a very clear and articulate way. That way you can get more work. And unless you're independently wealthy or somehow make a business off of like, I want to make this because of, because I want to, that's a very hard way to make a living. And don't get me wrong. Art is definitely a part of design, but it's a part. It's not the whole of why you do it. Like I was an artist when I was a kid, I was doing oil painting classes when I was like six. And my grandfather was an artist. My mom's a calligrapher. My dad was a theater agent. So my whole childhood was pretty creative. But when I want to do art, I do it in my free time. I don't necessarily do it at work. Yes, a lot of those skills bleed into my practice when I'm doing design work. But I know at the end of the day, I have to be able to be a good communicator. And that's what the biggest thing I try and get my students to understand is it's about understanding what you're trying to do, boiling it down to a very understandable, justified thesis and then executing it in a way that you're bringing the client along on the journey so that way they know they're part of the equation. You're not just showing up with something and kind of pissing them off by not having them come along with it, um, the journey with you. And the students that get that are the ones I think end up doing really well. Honestly, working for consulting firms is definitely something that I've been proud of, but the most proud I've been is when some of my students have gone on to to win IDSA Student Merit Award, which is like industrial design, um, Society of America, for those of you who don't know on the podcast, um, I had a student last semester who I guess I'll shamelessly plug, like Elizabeth. She did, she won, and that was fucking awesome. I was so excited when she won, did a great job. So seeing my students go and then like really take it and run with it, that's really cool because so far, most of my career up to this point, because I'm 34, I had to think about that for a second, has been how do I push myself to get better? And now, when I was a huge, I was the director of a team. So it's not so much about me, it's much more about other people. And when I was our lead and I was managing people. So I think that's something where when you get to see other people like taking the ball and running with it and them doing well, that's something that's really, really, I don't know, 
it makes you feel good inside more than just like, oh, I got one more portfolio piece. It's having someone else. Because honestly, I definitely met the generation of design where people were talking about sustainability when I was in school, but it definitely wasn't that critical. It was always like a nice little bonus. But this generation is the generation where we literally have, what, five years left until the temperature gets hot enough where we're irreparably screwed. And this generation is the one where if they are going to run with it, I want them to have as many tools in their kit as possible so they can hopefully save us from our own impending self-made doom. And those students are the ones that are hopefully going to like make the awesome things and work for the all birds and awesome companies that honestly, I hope get copied. Like the more mm -hmm. companies that are doing good things and then the yeah. more companies that copy them, like usually I, like, I hate that stuff. Like if I saw a knockoff of my product, I'd be like, oh, what the hell? Why is my, I literally saw one of my OXO products at um, Home Goods, which is like a off-brand mm -hmm. like home store. And I took pictures of it and I was going to post online, like here's what happens when your work gets stolen. But at the end of the day, it's like, I had plastic parts get copied to make more plastic parts. Yeah. I'd rather have a super sustainable design I made get copied and have more sustainable designs out there. Like that, I'd be like, great, copy away. I mean, my client probably wouldn't be happy with that, but I'd be totally fine. <laughs> but uh, is, is that the Andy Warhol quote, uh, imitation's the ultimate form of flattery? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one, yeah. one of those, you're the artist, not me. Um, but yeah, I, I, same thing happened to us uh, way back in the day. We were working on peripherals and accessories for Philips and uh, we designed, uh, one of my colleagues designed this sort of uh, desktop speakers and they, they were beautiful. They look like little, um, little penguins sitting, sitting on the, on the countertop and they kind of became pseudo iconic and we just saw them showing up on Chinese mark night market <laughs> stalls and things like that. And, um, but I'll go one step further than you, than being 34. I'm, I'm, uh, in the twilight years of my forties and, um, sustainability yeah it's always been one of those topics that what did uh, john gertzakis tell us in the first uh podcast there's a lot of cheerleaders in sustainability there's not a lot of athletes um mm -hmm. and i think with like with generations your generation kind of stepped it up a notch and then i think that you're spot the on yeah the next generation the next generation is stepping it up even more just by necessity and um by values so um, I think also having those tools in place, like in the CAD software, actually helps a lot. I mean, when we went through school, we didn't even, I think it was Autodesk at the time, or AutoCAD, mm. and it was a lot of the old school drawing. Yeah. Shorts, um, but yeah, it was, I mean, having those plugins adds that extra layer and the extra step that makes it a lot more easier. Mm -hmm. for for the the next generation yeah it's fascinating to hear you talk about the solidworks plugins mm -hmm. um it, when you said that i was thinking about this this whole concept of industry 4.0 and uh i think with design technology is definitely an enabler um whether it be ai or parametric modeling or or whatever else whatever tools you use um they can definitely help the process so um yeah i agree yeah. I mean, that's where I'm, I'm super curious. Like I, I definitely am on that side of like half of me is super pumped by AI and half of me is borderline terrified. I'm not really sure where I fall yet. <laughs> I would like yeah. to think I'm an optimist on it, at least for now, because I do feel like in sustainabilities, like for sustainability, it's been such a slow creeping forward. And this is finally a, a, a point in which like an inflection point where 
there's going to be software that's going to come out that's going to completely change how we can see connections between things. Mm -hmm. Like my obsession for the last few years has been reading every single book I can on trees and nature and just how disconnected humans are from the actual natural world around us and how people don't even know where their food comes from or what type of tree they're looking at or how forests are, which is why we use it as our disposal and why we have basically no natural like wilderness left at all. And the more you can learn about those things, the more you understand how things all come together and are connected. And AI is able to see those connections way better than we can. So that type of stuff fascinates me. And I'm curious how far a well-trained designer can go with AI. Because mm. that's something that I think, I hope I'm not fooling myself, but I more or less believe like, I think I'm at the point in my career, like being at a director level where if I'm using AI, I have the background and everyone else in this call as well, uh, and many other people globally to use it in a way that you're educated and you know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious about how those people with the experience can take that and just supercharge their process. Um, on the other side, I'm also really curious, people who don't have those skills yet, how many people can now become a designer because they don't have that hang up of, like when I was in school, I have several friends who were great in the beginning of design school and then they got into sketching class and they got like, they weren't the best sketchers, they got really de um, demoralized. Then they weren't great at CAD, then they got more demoralized. And then all of a sudden they dropped out of design school. And that doesn't need to be the case. Like you can be an amazing designer, but not be, like I said, an amazing artist. So now with tools like AI, can those people find their niche and stay in the field without having to drop out just, just because they weren't the most amazing renderer or something? So I'm curious to see what types of people can become creatives that historically mm. wouldn't have been. And I'm curious to see people who are already seasoned who now have a way to supercharge the amount of output they can give, what they'll end up coming up with. That's fascinating. I think, you know, think about cultural misfits. Like I, I knew plenty of kids when I was younger that were like awesome tag artists and DJs and super creative people that just kind of fell off the map because they didn't plug into society. But if you think about the the people that can adopt tools like this, how creative they could be and um, and how, how much of a con contribution that could make, I, I'm I'm with you there. Uh, well, I think because they have the foundations, they have the thinking behind it. Yeah. So you, 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 that's, that's the thing coming back to the whole, what you said, the importance of learning, you know, the fundamentals, the basics, the... the you got to put in your 1,000 yeah. hours or your 10,000 hours, you know, as Jason says, at yeah. Art Centre. You know, when you're an automotive designer, you got to go through hmm. 60 HB pencils or whatever it is, 100 HB pencils. And um, you said yeah. something that Karen slightly picked up on. You said, now that I'm at director level, and I don't know that it's a director level, but at a certain sense of awareness as a creative about what the tool should serve, the tool that serves rather than the tool that kind of um, guides or something. I don't know if that's a right metaphor, but um, yeah, I think if you if you know how to to leverage them, then it's the field's exciting because we um, quite often in projects. I'm sure you you've faced similar projects over your career, particularly in the strategic ones that where companies are asking you to envision five or ten years out. You have a feeling strategically for the influences that are going to define the, that given market or product category or service model or whatever in the next five to 10 years. But it's very difficult to articulate because 
it hasn't been created yet. So without going into a full-on videography and uh, expensive, elaborate concept production kind of exercise, AI can help you help kick kickstart that, I guess, to some degree if you use it mm-hmm. the right way. So um, painting more, better futures, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the thing is you need to be able to envision the future before you're able to visualize the future. And I think that's the tricky part for a lot of people to begin with. And that's the part that AI has the problem with. Like I was, Mm. whenever I've, I've tried mixing AI into my process more often just to make myself more profitable, like on a simple level where if I'm billing for X amount of hours at my rate, at my speed, but I can shave off some time here and there to maybe put more time into a different portion of the project to make a better output. That sounds great. But then the thing that's tricky is that it's really good currently at like making another shoe or another car because Mm -hmm. there's so many shoes and cars. But if I'm trying to make the future of um, some ridiculous thing that doesn't exist, then it's, that doesn't, it doesn't compute. And that's at the point where I might be able to get a few steps closer to where I want to be, but that's where the hard skills are in, invaluable, at least currently. I'm sure within a year when this stuff evolves at the rapid speed, it'll be a whole different conversation. But right now, at least, like you need to be able to sit down and get the work uh, to do what you want. And that's something that I talk with my students a lot about where I think AI is this kind of um, deceivingly awesome technology at least currently, where mm. you just you see on social media the best of what people put out, right? We didn't see the 150 shitty ideas that came out of AI before you got to that one. <laughs> and then the other part right. is, even if you get that amazing idea, it's currently really, really bad at duplicating it. So it's like if I make an amazing, um, like I'm using a microphone right now, microphone design, and I love it. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to move forward with it. But now I want to show it in a storyboard. I want to change views or show the other side. You can't. Like it's super hard to recreate that thing into a usable format. And then when you want to go and take it to manufacturing, you have no CAD file. And then if you want to share it with engineers, it's not to scale. So it's like it's this thing that kind of catfishes you into thinking the product's done. Where early in my career, um, sketching was kind of what got me into design in the first place. So I've always been pretty good at sketching. But I learned early on, one of my bosses, Jonas Damon, super great designer, still works in New York. He literally like, took me aside and was like, you need to tone your sketches down. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, that <laughs> seems so antithetical to what I wanted to do. And he's like, when you make it too tight, the client thinks it's finished and then they think it's done. It's better for you to have some looseness and wiggle room in there. That way they can air their grievances or concerns early opposed to, cause some people are super uncomfortable with critiquing. And I find that with my students too. And I try and push them in their uncomfort zone of like, no one's trying to be mean to you. We're just trying to critique the work so it gets to the right place. Mm-hmm. And if clients don't feel comfortable to do that, you'll end up in a place where all of a sudden the last meeting, their true feelings come out and then you're behind schedule and then you want to pull your hair out. So that was an interesting moment where I realized, oh, it's actually better to maybe do my, a quick CAD model, blur it, and then just put some quick line work on top of it, then to sit there and do like a beautiful polished render. And that's something that I think AI is interesting and also dangerous about where Mm. it makes things so perfectly beautiful that someone who's not a designer is like, cool, go make it. 
And you might've just like typed some words in and found that out. Whereas that's literally step one of like a hundred to get yeah. to the yeah. final thing. But that being said, like there, it's coming out where you can change styles now, which is a whole nother thing of like, is it ethical to say like, do a rendering in the style of Reed Schlegel, which I tried. And luckily I'm not famous enough that it knows how to do that. So I was happy that it didn't know how to draw like me, which was nice. Um, who knows? Like if you can do it for Scott Robertson, for example, he is famous enough in the sketching world that like you can recreate his sketches if you want to, yeah. which is a whole other ethical thing. But at least at that point, you can say, hey, I want it to be loose or tight. So like it's getting to a place where as long as you know how to communicate and like drive the conversation, you can use it to your advantage. I got four points to talk about there. I think you hit on four critical points for young designers. And I just want to I want to highlight them. The first one is kind of where you ended off, actually, and you talk, you said about loosening up your sketches. And a statement that we've heard in the past, and it really rings true to me a lot, is that a sketch is a conversation and a rendering is a, a statement. And I think that's really nice in design. I think um, quite often sketches bring a lot of energy and, and room to interpret, but when the minute it kind of gets too real, then it feels finished. Yeah. Like I can't comment. Um, so that's that's really nice. Um, yeah, and and the other thing is that AI isn't yet a concept. It's just a visual. So to your to your point, you know, there's a visual there, but there's no CAD file behind it. There's no supply chain kind of thinking behind it. There's no uh, value proposition and market fit and all of the you know the the, the yeah, design the story yeah, around it. Even just the marketing and strategy side, like yeah. understanding the business case and to, to make it viable. Yeah. All those sides of it. Um, and, and so it's kind of like, in some ways it could be like handing a kid to the, the keys to a Ferrari, you know, it could, you could crash it pretty quickly if, if you, if you get in there and start producing a bunch of concepts and selling them and then realizing that uh, none of it is actually real or possible or feasible. So I think yeah. um, one of the things I think that can really help young designers, and I probably learned it a fraction later than I could have uh, in my career, was really to come out of the gate with a strong point of view about the world and about your opinion on design. And I think that's something that you have and your background and you've always known that. Um, and, you know, am I, do I love art? Um, am I, you know, am I an urbanite or am I a wilderness person or am I a hybrid of both? Do I like utility tools? Do What gets me going? Do I like wine, food culture? Um, am I a traveler? Uh, do I like to stay at home and contemplate things? I think design is very much one of those. You're at your best when you're, you know who you are. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I haven't really been able to articulate that until you started talking today. So appreciate it. <laughs> I'll charge you for my therapy lesson later. <laughs> send it send it to Simon. <laughs> but no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think honestly, uh, I mean, a few years ago, I I went to a therapist for a few years. I think that was something that was super helpful for me. And like actually sitting down and thinking about like there's something called interfamilial systems of like who you are at your core and what personas you build around yourself to keep that version of yourself safe. And I think if you understand who that person is at the base level, that helps at least in your decision-making process. Like if you're going to a new job or if you're moving to a new city, um, 
or if like you have a client that maybe you're not ethically okay with, like, do you have that awkward conversation with your boss or something like that? So I think those types of things of really knowing yourself, like I'm an avid meditator. I try and do it every day for at least 20 minutes um, and journaler. And I think those are things that help me a lot because I also am someone who I call myself a recovering perfectionist where I like, I used to be so strict with myself on design things that I would like literally my hands, which like couldn't stop shaking. So I'd be so stressed about things. And over the years I was like, it's not worth that at all. Like at the end of the day, like I love design, but it's not like I'm designing a Boeing airplane. Like no one's going to die if my microphone isn't perfect, if I'm going to keep using that example. So for me, it's like trying to really think through what it is that drives you as a designer, why you make those decisions, where you put your effort, and then trying to find a strike a balance, which is not always easy to be fair between all those different things. So that way you're capable of doing your best work. Because if you are someone who is just like pushing yourself so hard to have the perfect thing, A, students eventually will come to the realization, I hope that I did, that perfection is bullshit. There's no such thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, Every one of us on the call is a talented designer or creative in their own way, but all of us could think the same design is great or awful for our own reasons. And it really comes down to the soft skills of knowing your client. And you can't really know other people unless you know yourself. So if you're able to do that, then you can put any design in front of someone within reason. That's obviously like researched and thought through for why it's put in front of them and hopefully come to a consensus. And that's like the soft level skills that people don't talk about in design very much, at least at the school level, because at school, it's such a fire hose of skills you have to learn. It's hard to just even be like proficient in CAD and sketching and design research and presentation and blah, 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 blah. When you're working is when you start to have those other skills. But when I, I actually did a presentation a few years ago at, at Kane University, the school I'm teaching for in Rome, and my whole presentation was on... Um, what did I even call it? I think it was just like finding inspiration. And I got up in front of this auditorium and like, it felt like a few, like it was at least 500 people. It was a pretty packed mm-hmm. auditorium. And I literally was like talked about all the shit that like scares me and like how I get past all that stuff and like not having to worry about being perfect. And if things are going wrong, like what to do? It's like, it's fine to be like stressed out, but like just take a step back and figure out how you get around that stuff. Mm-hmm. Because just my way I used to do is like, I would just force myself through it which I think is one of my greatest and worst skills where like, I can just like turn it, I can turn my emotions off and just like plow through. But then afterwards you're like emotionally exhausted. It's not the right way to do things for yeah. the long term. <laughs> and my little bit of a side ramble is just like talking through students on it's okay to be vulnerable about things. And it's also important to reflect on yourself because design work is really personal. It's not like you're doing accounting work for some random company. Like you're putting creative energy into something which does take a lot of mental capital. So between the the design work you're doing today and and the professorship, um, for those listening, Reed is also building uh, a new home in upstate New York using primitive construction uh, methods. Uh, And, uh, you know, you seem to have a, a, a really perfect balance of, you know, these like consumer electronics and and design and understanding that, but also being connected, like you were saying, uh, to to nature and the natural world. So so how does that influence your inspiration? And, um, you know, how how would you say that compares to the perfectionist read uh, in terms of you could say coming back down to earth uh, in, in your in your process today? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a balance between those. Like when you're doing a project, I'll explain what it is in a second, but like like what we're talking about, you kind of have to let perfectionism go because you're just one person doing a massively huge project out in the woods and it's just not going to happen the way you always want it to. Um, but yeah, about four years ago, I bought seven acres of land up in on the Catskills in New York State. And my best friend from college and I were working together. I call myself a fake architect. He's a real architect. He has an actual license. Mm -hmm. um, I had had this plan for about a decade where I've been all of my freelance money and all of my teaching money that was on top of my salary was going into a separate bank account. And I was like actively saving for like 10 years to do this project. And then when the pandemic came, all of a sudden, cheap and crappy land was just as expensive as good land. And I had been looking like, oh, let's like be picky and find what I want. And all of a sudden it's like crap, like the waterlogged landlocked stuff is as much money as like the lakefront stuff what was last year. So I was like, I need to shit or get off the pot and do this. So I found this piece of land I liked at auction and I just went and just bought it in one day and I knew what I wanted because I'd seen probably 25, I probably maybe like 40 plots of land by that point. Um, and we were going to build this stilted house on it, but then the cost of lumber like tripled and quadrupled. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, now I can't even afford to build the outhouse this way. So what else can we do? And the property has, it kind of terraces three times up this big view that looks, um, I guess it's Northeast over the Catskill mountains into the Catskill park. And we were gonna put this big circular stone deck up there. And I said, well, stone is free because the Catskills are basically one gigantic plateau of because Catskills are if there's any geologists listening like correct me if I'm wrong but from my understanding the Catskills are one giant plateau that have basically been slowly eroding into mountains opposed to like the Himalayas which are slowly rising into mountains it's basically the opposite they're basically a giant um a uh, bunch of rivers that has turned into very soft peaks all over the place um and because of that the bluestone is just everywhere like you pick up a giant stone and there's 45 more. And they're all these like nice layered, flat, pretty blue stones. So I just said, let's just turn that into a cabin itself. And we basically now, how my one year project is going into summer four right now, where basically we built this 10 foot tall, I think it's like 18 feet wide on the outer outside with two foot thick walls, this big circular um, cylinder that has these kind of like medieval arrow slit style windows and this, floating stairs built into the wall that go up to the roof. And actually before this call, I was sitting here putting together construction documents for my metal fabricator who's making the windows that we're doing next. Um, I'm working on that project for the last two, I guess, like I said, four years now, going into my fourth year. Um, but that project honestly has just been a really nice balance of when I go up there, I think I've, I've camped there for like 80 nights or something like that in the last few, few wow. years. So I never spent so much time outside and the property it's like it's off it's in the middle of nowhere so it's just you mm. and the woods and i'll camp up there but i'm up there camping in the winter about two weeks ago with my buddy connor when it was like 20 degrees outside i've been camping up there when it was negative 10 that was too much that was very cold but uh <laughs> having that time away from new york city and having that time to work on a project that literally is just slow and requires you to do exorbitant amount of physical labor because every single stone was dug up, washed, set. You have, it's a, I think it's like a 250 foot elevation from the street to the site. So every bag of 80 pound mortar was carried up by foot for the whole thing. And it was like type of project where I was always there doing it. But luckily, since I'm in the creative world, I have a lot of creative friends. So I've brought like 
40 friends up there at this point. And it's always like, I'll pay for the food and booze and get you there. And I have enough camping stuff for everyone. As long as you'll just like make sure that if I fall off the cliff, you'll bring me to the hospital and you'll help me with some free labor. <laughs> like, hopefully, you know, hopefully not. I know. I hope not. My mom and my girlfriend are always very happy when there's someone with me because <laughs> now that it's that tall, if you fall off, it's not a joke anymore. But um, so we've been doing that. But that's been like a personal project. That is just something that I've always wanted to do. Um, like a stone from the lake that my dad's ashes are in and my grandma's obituary card and one of my grandfather's coin collections like in the walls of this thing. So it's like, it's something that I intend to pass down to my kids and keep for as long as possible. Um, but recently the new development is my partner, Allie, and then my sister and her fiance and I all formed a new company together called Landmarked. And we uh, bought the eight acre plot next door. So we're turning that into two camping. It's somewhere between a camping platform and a cabin where we're trying to find this perfect middle ground between a cabin has to have a septic and a well in order to rent it to people. But my ultimate goal for this project has always been to restore the forest because I bought both plots were um, reasonably um, clear cut about 20 years ago, but not clear cut. They were just harvested for all like the biggest cash crop trees. So like all the huge, when the snow melted after I bought it, I found like these four foot diameter cherry stumps. And it was such a bummer, honestly, to find out that it was all gone. But that being said, there's still like plenty of beautiful sugar maple, duck's foot maple, birch, beech. There's still some cherries left, ironwood. There's a whole bunch of awesome forest up there. Hmm. But this whole project is basically, we're all trying to restore the forest back to what it was. Um, I have a huge order going in this year. We're putting in all these fruit bearing trees and everything for wildlife and also for us and trying to get more of the diversity back into the chunk of land and hope that all the animals kind of like spread it to everyone else nearby too. And like through osmosis, make that whole area a bit healthier. Um, but we're building, as I started saying before I got in my nature tangent, this um, instead of being a cabin, which would require us to cut down a ton of trees and have to then put in a super expensive septic and all these things, which doesn't make sense on a steep rocky site. Um, but we also were looking into a deck, which doesn't need a permit, is much more loosey goosey, but a deck, like there's a ton of mosquitoes up there. So we've been talking to this, the zoning guy and I up there, we're buddies now. I've been talking to him for like four years straight and bothering all his questions. Um, but we found we can put a roof on it and put a screen around it. And we're gonna put basically a rainwater collection system and a composting toilet so that way you can wash your hand and dishes. And we're gonna build these like very um, beautifully designed because my partner, Ali, also our partner in this company and project now is an architect. And actually before this call, we were sitting here getting our construction drawings for our board meeting we have tonight. We have a bi-weekly board meeting with all of our family, Kirsten, my sister, her boyfriend, our fiance Harrison, Ali and I, um, we're gonna present the designs for a thing that we're doing in Revit right now. But the project is basically expanded into, now we have this other chunk of land, which we've already mapped out a few miles of trails around the whole thing and how we're going to, where we're gonna plant um, different chunks of trees in one area that's been taken down and try and restore the whole thing. And now like the whole vision is like slowly becoming much bigger into what I've always wanted it to be. And the reason I bring this all up is because I have always been trying to figure out how to do more of what I want to do. Um, and yes, there's always the client project that you are like so excited about. But a lot of times, if you're being honest, it's because you have to work. You need to have money and you need to pay for things and like family and kids and whatever else is on your plate. 
So this is the first time where I've been trying to take all of that prepping for last decade and put it into a project that's personally interesting and passionate for me and my family. Um, and then also have it turn into a passive income stream where we can also hopefully educate people on, hey, this is Moss. I just finished, if you haven't read it, um, Robert Wall Kimmerer, she, best books ever. She wrote um, Gathering Moss, I just finished it, fucking fascinating. And then um, Braiding Sweetgrass, probably my favorite book I've ever read. Um, from her books, simple things like, please don't step on this moss. You understand the insane number of circumstances that had to happen for this moss to even exist and how long it'll take from your like barbarian footstep for it to grow back. Like, I want this to be something where people can start to learn and see those connections. Um, and for me personally, it's like, we have a goal to build a shop up there and hopefully like move there full time potentially. And then we'll just do our design work from the Catskills, we'll, um, my partner and I will come back to the city two days a week to teach. And then we'll we have our client meetings and kind of do the 50-50 split between upstate and here. And uh, if you can't tell, I'm very passionate about this topic. It's been nice. like my very fun side project we've been doing for a while. And now I'm roping my family into it with me. Well, so I think the, the short lesson again for young and aspiring designers out of that whole um, fascinating case study is, uh, the, the shit or get off the pot moment <laughs> and without, yeah. you know, in a much more elegant way, but, uh, you know, there are, there are projects that I think every creative has in the back of their mind and they don't always bubble to the top and, and give you that sense of urgency. There's always other priorities and urgencies. And, um, I think until we started to build our, my, our little team at play and co concept projects were one of those things and passion projects were one of those things that we were like yeah we will get to them but until we actually put our proverbial money where our mouth was um and executed on them we didn't realize the true inherent value of doing our own uh, work and following through on a passion project we didn't see the benefit of it until it was out there in the world. And I think to your point about buying that first seven acre plot and then buying the plot next to it and now starting to talk about trails and forming an eco kind of lodge um, platform and revitalizing the surrounding um, ecosystem, you got to take the first step and uh, and see where it goes. And that's part of breaking that perfectionism kind of uh, mentality, I can imagine, you know, so having faith in the process and so I, I can imagine that that's that comes with experience too. You know, if you're coming straight out of school, it's everything's a lesson. Um, but over time, uh, that's that's critical. Oh yeah, I mean it's definitely a daunting project. And I remember early in my design career when I was at Smart Design, I had the project that actually got copied. It was this um, Oxo Green Saver project, which actually still exists. Um, it was actually one of the projects I was most proud of because it's one of the projects actually like really got to solve a problem. It was literally, um, I think the product basically took food waste from vegetables. I've been a vegetarian for like six years now, um, and made them last twice as long. So that product getting copied, um, was actually kind of nice. I was like, oh, I guess it's okay. This project got copied. Um, but, uh, I'm trying to remember why I haven't started saying this. You know, I've actually uncharacteristically completely lost my train of thought. Talking about I, I have that effect on people. <laughs> <laughs> I usually am pretty good at moving back. Like sometimes I'll have the moment where I know I've lost it, but somehow it just comes back and I just keep talking. No, I, I'm usually the other way. Once I've lost it, it's not coming back. <laughs> and I do it a lot. <laughs> but um, um, it had something to do with um, potentially following your instincts or being oh, young. Yes, yeah. thank you. 
So it was basically, I remember sitting at the studio and being there super late one night and just trying to get that project perfect. And one of my coworkers came over and he was like, what are you doing here? Like, you don't need to be here this late. And I said like, I just need to get this right. I want to work on it till it's done. And he's like, why are you doing that? Like, don't you trust in your design process? And I was like, I, I think, I guess. And then he's like, dude, look, look at all the projects you've done. Like, have you followed the same process every single time? I said, yeah. And he's like, have you failed yet? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, then just follow the same process. You don't have to force it. Like, you don't have to stay up until 10 o'clock at night and make yourself go crazy and lose sleep and be a worse designer tomorrow. Just trust the fact that your process is something that's an ever-evolving tool. And it's something that if you ever stop of growing your process, then you should be concerned. But as long as you're someone who is continually trying to grow and learn and you have that foundation of skills and you have the thinking ability, then what's, what are you worried about? And I think that's the thing that I try and get students to understand the most is that skills are super important. Do not get me wrong. Like if you're trying, I was an intern coordinator and I was a hiring manager at several companies for a long time. If you don't have that sexy render and those skills immediately, you're not going to get into the next pile. If you're just leading with a bunch of really great thought, but it's pages of notes, designers don't read. There's literally a book called Designers Don't Read. And it's going to be hard for you to get to that next phase, unless it's like a design research role or something. But if it's a physical design, like industrial designer looking at it, they're going to be like, I'm going to go to the person who I can understand immediately. And if you can be the person who thinks, then you're going to be the person who's going to beat the person who has skills. So I always try and get everyone to understand, like, yes, work on your hard skills. That is something you have to do. But at the end of the day, I can teach anyone how to draw. I can teach anyone how to do CAD, but I can't teach anyone how to be an intellectual person who can see between the lines and find the right problem to solve and then figure out the most creative, efficient way to execute it. And that's something that comes with practice. And it's the hardest part to get through in a portfolio. But when you do, that's when you see someone and an employer is willing to take a risk on you because junior level staff are a risk to a certain degree, especially if they require a visa or if they require training. Like it's not just a senior level person who can jump in and just fit with the team and start executing. You're somebody who is going to take some handholding. And that's why I will never stop um, praising smart design for doing that with designers. Like when I was there, they would do that for international students a lot. Um, which is something that's not really common in a lot of places because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And when you have places that are willing to do that and help you develop those skills, like for me personally, if I didn't have that, I would probably have had a much slower career or had a very different career. So with my students, I'm always trying to say like, why? Justify, explain it to me. How did you do this? Not just here's my design, really go into the thinking that went behind it because the more comfortable you are with explaining the thinking, backed up by hard skills, the more likely you are to get that job. If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at PlanCo, or visit PlanCo.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, keep playing, keep designing, and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play in Conversations, signing off.